0: I'm too sexy for my love, too sexy for my love, love's going to leave me. I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt, so sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan, too sexy for Milan, New York and Japan. I'm too sexy for your party, too sexy for your party, no way I'm disco dancing. I'm a model, you know what I mean, and I do my little turn on the catwalk, yeah, on the catwalk, on the catwalk, yeah, I do my little turn on the catwalk. I'm too sexy for my car, too sexy for my car, too sexy by far, I'm too sexy for my hat, too sexy for my hat. What do you think about that? I'm a model. You know what I mean? And I do little turn on the catwalk. Yeah, on the catwalk. On the catwalk, yeah. I shake my little tush on the catwalk. I'm a too sexy for my, too sexy for my, too sexy for my, Cause I'm a model. You know what I mean. And I do my little turn on the catwalk. Yeah, on the catwalk. Yeah, on the catwalk. Yeah, I shake my little tush on the catwalk. I'm too sexy for my cat. Too sexy for my cat. Poor pussy. Poor pussy cat. I'm Too sexy for my love, too sexy for my love, love's going to leave me, and I'm too sexy for this song. Welcome back to That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, Ingmar Bergman, and this is episode 89, yes, and this episode is a part to the last episode, which was episode 88. And the last episode felt like a total fucking mess. I don't know how it was received, if it came off like a mess, but it certainly felt like a mess when I was recording it for a number of different reasons. So, today, I intend to well, make a shorter episode than the last few have been, and uh, also kind of just wrap up the shit I started talking about, which was essentially, why do people get wrapped up in conspiracy theory things like Q? Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, if you want a deeper dive into the QAnon phenomenon, I recommend listening to a podcast called QAA, AKA QAnon Anonymous. They've been (laughs) deep diving, going undercover, investigating this shit for a couple years now. Uh, but today I just kind of want to wrap up my own, um, understanding of why people get into it or any kind of conspiracy theory where someone thinks that there's like a puppet master pulling the strings and all this stuff, why people fall into that mindset, um, why those people create sort of their own subculture, such as uh, you see with people who follow QAnon, Q and, and also kind of wrap up uh, where it's going, sort of, or, or what possible solutions you could do to, you know, kind of deprogram people. Because it, it's cult mindset is essentially what it is. And people get programmed into certain perspectives and... Uh, you have to be deprogrammed. Same goes with like white supremacists, uh, neo-Nazi, it's cult. And um, you hear people that get out of say like a neo-Nazi group and their story of getting out, it was basically they had to completely shift um, their perspective on reality. Uh, they had to adopt a whole new reality and deprogram the reality that they had adopted. So I would like to start this off with something that I've read on here before. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll sort of I try to <laughs> give some cues on why I'm reading it. So this is from... Uh, Address at the conclusion of the Selma to Montgomery March. Author, Martin Luther King Jr. Date, March 25th, 1965. Location, Montgomery, Alabama. Genre. Speech. Topic, Birmingham, 1963. Montgomery Bus Boycott. Nonviolence. Voter Registration. I am reading this at the kinginstitute.stanford.edu slash king-papers, so on and so forth. Just Google MLK Eat Jim Crow. Now, here's here's some text. I love this, and it explains uh, some sort of dynamics um, that help inform and sort of explain my perspective on on how people fall into shit like QAnon, all right? So here it goes. Quoting. Uh, And there's some asides in here, too. Uh, Unquote. There are asides in here. I'm just going to skip over those because this was a transcription of a speech. So, quote. My dear and abiding friends, Ralph Abernathy, and to all the distinguished Americans seated here on the rostrum, my friends and co-workers of the state of Alabama, and to all of the freedom-loving people who have assembled here this afternoon from all over our nation and from all over the world. Last Sunday, more than 8,000 of us started on a mighty walk from Selma, Alabama. We have walked through desolate valleys and across the trying hills. We have walked on meandering highways and rested our bodies on rocky byways. Some of our faces are burned from the outpourings of the sweltering sun. Some have literally slept in the mud. We have been drenched by the rains. Our bodies are tired and our feet are somewhat sore. That's an understatement. But today, as I stand before you and think back over that great march, I can say, as Sister Pollard said, a 70-year-old Negro woman who lived in this community during the, the bus boycott. And one day, she was asked while walking if she didn't want a ride. She answered, no. And the person said, well... Aren't you tired? And with her ungrammatical profundity, she said, My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And in a real sense this afternoon, we can say that our feet are tired, but our souls are rested. They told us we wouldn't get here, and there would be those who said, that we would get here only over their dead bodies. But all the world knows today, uh, all the world today knows that we are here and we are standing, but the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying, we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. Now, it is not an accident that one of the great marches of American history should terminate in Montgomery, Alabama. Just ten years ago, in this very city, a new philosophy was born of the Negro struggle. Montgomery was the first city in the South in which the entire Negro community united and squarely faced its old, age-old oppressors. Out of this struggle, more than bus desegregation was won. A new idea more powerful than guns or clubs was born. Negroes took it and carried it across the South in epic battles that electrified the nation and the world. Yet, strangely, the climactic conflicts always were fought and won on Alabama's soil after Montgomery's heroic confrontations loomed up in Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, and elsewhere. But not until the colossus of segregation was challenged in Birmingham did the conscience of America begin to bleed. White America was profoundly aroused by Birmingham because it witnessed the whole community of Negroes facing terror and brutality with majestic scorn and heroic courage. And from the wells of this democratic spirit, the nation finally forced Congress to write legislation in hope that it would eradicate the stain of Birmingham The Civil Rights Act of 1964 gave Negroes some part of their rightful dignity, but without the vote, it was dignity without strength. Once more, the method of nonviolent resistance was unsheathed from its scabbard, and once again, an entire community was mobilized to confront the adversity. And began and again, the brutality of a dying order shrieks across the land. Yet Selma, Alabama became a shining moment in the conscience of man. If the worst in American life lurked in its dark streets, the best of American instincts arose passionately from across the nation to overcome it. There never was a moment in American history more honorable and more inspiring than the privilege, than the pilgrimage of clergymen and laymen of every race and faith pouring into Selma to face danger at the side of its embattlement, embattled Negroes. Hold on a second. Let me make sure I've got the rights. Yes, it is. Okay, thank God. Uh, at the side of its embattled Negroes. The confrontation of good and evil, compressed in the tiny community of Selma, generated the massive power to turn the whole nation to a new course. A president born in the South had the sensitivity to feel the will of the country. And in an address that will live in history, as one of the most passionate pleas for human rights ever made by a president of our nation, he pledged the might of the federal government to cast off the centuries-old blight. President Johnson rightly praised the courage of the Negro for awakening the conscience of the nation. On our part, We must pay our profound respects to the white Americans who cherish their democratic traditions over the ugly customs and privileges of generations and come forth boldly to join hands with us. From Montgomery to Birmingham, from Birmingham to Selma, from Selma back to Montgomery. A trail wound in a circle, long and often bloody. Yet it has become a highway up from darkness. Alabama has tried to nurture and defend evil. But evil is choking to death in the dusty roads and streets of this state. So I stand before you this afternoon with the conviction that segregation is on its deathbed in Alabama, and the only thing uncertain about it is how costly the segregationists and Wallace will make the funeral. Our whole campaign in Alabama has been centered around the right to vote. In focusing the attention of the nation on, and the world today on the flagrant denial of the right to vote, we are exposing the very origin, the root cause of a racial segregation in the Southland. Pause. Unquote. In my mind, while I was reading that, I was thinking of, for example, I live in Texas. Texas Republicans or Republicans across the board, thrive on voter suppression. Not election fraud. They'll tell you it's all election fraud. No, 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 no. Voter suppression. Closing down voting sites, especially in communities where there are poor and or brown people. Those two things usually go together, and that's kind of fucking by design as you'll find out in this speech. I proceed. Quote, Racial segregation as a way of life did not come about as a natural result of hatred between the races immediately after the Civil War. There were no laws segregating the races then. This is true. And as the noted historian C. Van Woodard Woodward, in his book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, clearly points out, the segregation of the races was really a political stratagem employed by the emerging Bourbon interests in the South to keep the Southern masses divided and Southern labor the cheapest in the land. Think, this is me, think, Right to work, quote, right to work. It's flagrant anti union, anti labor organizing legislation. The right to work. That's like calling a a federal uh, department, you know, a, a state department that is devoted toward war, calling it the peace department. You know, it's the play on words. Okay. Let's take it back a little bit, because I wanna I want to reiterate this here. Quote: Our whole campaign in Alabama has been centered around the right to vote. In focusing the attention of the nation and the world on the flagrant denial of the right to vote, we are exposing the very origin, the root cause of racial segregation in the Southland. Racial segregation as a way of life did not come about as a natural result of hatred between the races immediately after the Civil War. There were no laws segregating the races then, and as the noted historian C. Van Woodward in his book The Strange Career of Jim Crow clearly points out, The segregation of the races was really a political stratagem employed by the emerging bourbon interests in the South to keep the southern masses divided and southern labor the cheapest in the land. You see, It was a simple thing to keep the poor white masses working for near-starvation wages in the years that followed the Civil War. Why, if the poor white plantation or mill worker became dissatisfied with his low wages, the plantation or mill worker would merely threaten to—wait, wait, wait, let me start—I fucked that up. You see, it was a simple thing to keep the poor white masses working for near-starvation wages in the years that followed the Civil War. Why, if the poor white plantation or mill worker became dissatisfied with his low wages, the plantation or mill owner would merely threaten to fire him. Yo, were you walking back there? Oh no, that's the neighbor. (laughs) Why, if the poor white plantation or mill worker became dissatisfied with his low wages, the plantation or mill owner would merely threaten to fire him and hire former Negro slaves and pay him even less. Thus, the southern wage was kept almost unbearably low. Towards the end of the Reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That is what was known as the Populist Movement. This is a real thing. This was a real thing. The leaders of this movement began awakening the poor white masses and former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emerging Bourbon interests. Not only that, but they began uniting the Negro and white masses into a voting bloc that threatened to drive the Bourbon interests from the command posts of the political power in the South. Let me read that again. The leaders of this populist movement began awakening the poor white masses and the former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emerging bourbon interests. Bourbon here is a capitalized B. It's talking just southern, you know, the southern uh, ruling class. Not only that, but they began the... The populist movement began uniting the Negro and white masses into a voting bloc that threatened to drive the Bourbon interests from the command posts of political power in the South. To meet this threat, the Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer this development of a segregated society. I want you to follow me here because this is very important to see the roots of racism and the denial of the right to vote. Through their control of mass media, they revised the doctrine of white supremacy. They saturated the thinking of the poor white masses with it, thus clouding their minds to the real issue involved in the populist movement. They then directed the placement on the books of the South of laws that made it a crime for Negroes and whites to come together as equals at any level. And that did it. That crippled and eventually destroyed the populist movement of the 19th century. If it may be said of the slavery era that the white man took the world and gave the Negro Jesus, then it may be said of the Reconstruction era that the Southern aristocracy took the world and gave the poor white man Jim Crow. He gave him Jim Crow. And when his wrinkled stomach cried out for the food that his empty pockets could not provide, he ate Jim Crow, a psychological bird that told him that no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man better than the black man. And he ate Jim Crow. And when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the buses and in the stores, on the streets, and in the public buildings. And his children, too, learned to feed upon Jim Crow their last outpost of psychological oblivion. Thus, the threat of the free exercise of the ballot by the Negro and the white masses alike resulted in the establishment of a segregated society. They segregated Southern money from the poor whites. They segregated Southern Moors from the rich whites. They segregated Southern churches from Christianity. They segregated Southern minds from honest thinking. And they segregated the Negro from everything. That's what happened when the Negro and the white masses of the South threatened to unite and build a great society. A society of justice where none would prey upon the weakness of others. A society of plenty, where greed and poverty would be done away. A society of brotherhood, where every man would respect the dignity and worth of human personality. And I'm going to end it right there. Let's see. Actually, I'm not sure I've ever read beyond that point. Let's see. Yada, yada, yada. Yes, we are on the move and no wave of racism can stop us. Yada, yada. Okay, so why did I read all that stuff? What was that about? That was about the message. There's a lot in the message that, Mr. Martin Luther King said here, Jr. <laughs> uh, but the lessons from that speech that I want to highlight in regard to this topic are that racism and racist policies are not natural things, these are inventions. These are inventions used to separate people and get people fighting one another. But what kind of people? Usually people who don't have, uh, it's usually a, a lot of people who individually do not have nearly as much power as some other people. And though some other people usually tend to have way more power, individually even. It's a tale as old as time. I started talking about it in the last episode, about what happened in pre-revolutionary America. Although, ever since I had my friend Mark on here, like, year before last, uh, he studied history and he turned me on to the idea of like, it was not a revolutionary war. It was a war for independence. If it were a revolution, that would have been different. If it were a revolution, it would have been more of a populist kind of thing. It would have been more of a democracy kind of a thing. And there were a bunch of revolutionary uprisings happening in the United States, I have since learned since my conversation with him, with Mark, there was lots of revolutionary activity happening in what we now call the United States back then, the American colonies. There was a lot of revolutionary activity happening because wealth disparity And wealth disparity, wealth equals power within the system of production that we have now and the systems of production they had then. You need things to survive, to feed your body. You need food, water, shelter to protect you from the elements. You need materials. And some of these materials take labor. So one or more people have to put in labor work to create a thing. Let's call that thing a commodity. So it takes a person so much time, so much material, so much energy, so much creativity and focus and logic, of course, to make a commodity. And we need these commodities to live. However, there's an interesting thing that happens when people are making commodities. Say, when you're cutting down trees to get the wood to make chairs, while you're cutting up that wood, you are creating sawdust. You can sell that sawdust to uh, people who have chicken coops, right? Put sawdust down on their floor. And you can get some money in return for that. Or or, or trade for other commodities um, in exchange for the commodity you're giving them. And, well, long and short, I'm not going to give you a full... Uh, <laughs> a full analysis of commodity and commodity fetishism. That's getting into stuff. I'm trying to avoid a certain trigger word, but I'm going to use it. uh, Stuff that sort of um, analyzes capitalism and critiques it, you know, looks at capitalism and takes it a step further or, or just, basically offers a critique of all things, not just capitalism, but a critique of the way power is distributed between individuals, between groups, um, between a body and its environment distribution of power. This is Marxist study stuff, okay? And some people really get triggered when they hear that name and some people really get triggered when they think of bare thought that uh, such a thing as capitalism could ever be critiqued. Some people get triggered when they hear someone else say that this is not the end all be all. We are not at the end of history. And just like everything else before things change and they must change if we are to survive human humanity and the environment. <clears throat> well, anyway, the reason I bring that up is, say, pre-War of Independence America, there was a lot of uprisings because of massive wealth uh, uh, inequality, which is quite a lot like it is now, where very few had a whole lot, 99% versus 1% kind of a thing. It was like that back in the 1700s, early and mid-1700s. And one of the things, you know, the powers that be, the people that ended up becoming the, uh, the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, um, basically they were all very wealthy, well-to-do white men. And... They had certain interests, many of them. Now, there were some who did side uh, with the poor working people um, of all colors. But there were quite a, quite more outspoken of those framers who were more interested, whether they intended it or not consciously, although some, like Samuel Adams, Flat out just said, I want to make sure to protect mine. I want to make sure to protect what I have. Even though I've got an excess of wealth and power, I want to make sure I I keep that. All right? And so there was a bunch of stuff done back then to divide poor against poor. There was a bunch of stuff done, as you heard, in Jim Crow South, post-Civil War, to keep poor divided from poor and the populist movement there populist is kind of a weird word today it's used by lots of different groups but that populist movement around civil war that populist movement of which you know you think kind of like john brown that was like proto-socialist movement in the u.s all right and that was around the time marx was you know alive and kicking and critiquing. And then, as I mentioned in the last episode, there came, uh, take it over to Europe. Uh, you got poor fighting the poor. And one of the ways that happened was with the uh, conspiracy theories on which uh, the Volkish um, Bewegung, the, the people's movement of that time were founded on a bunch of conspiracy theories. And then later it became the Nazi party, which was founded on conspiracy theories. And it seems like every conservative movement. And for some reason, it seems like massive conservative movements uh, you know they don't want to shake up the status quo. they don't want to change things and and that means keeping things the way they are and that and the way things are is that well, there are a very few who have an excess of power over a mass of others, and the very few often tend to control the narrative the 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 cultural the the popular story happening because uh, you know they control the news that goes out or so on and so forth it's basically keeping people fighting each other uh and so try to wrap this up uh and so when you look at like shit like qAnon right now it's based on a lot of conspiracy theories that have been around since the 1800s and, and before that and the idea that um, race is a natural you know racism is a natural thing it's not it's not um, And of course there is the na- there is the natural uh, human experience of fear of the other. Fear of the unknown, all right? Things you don't know, things you can't predict, can be scary. Because you don't know if it's going to hurt. It might make you feel bad. You might get a icky boo-boo. You might get a little paper cut or something from the other, from the unknown. The unknown can be scary. But that fear can be exploited and turned into something much uglier that fear can be stoked let me take a uh, quick break i'll be right back i'm back and i want to talk about alienation and try to wrap this thing up because i can talk in circles here uh okay so uh We're talking fear of the other, and we're talking aliens. You know, you hear about shit on, like, Fox News, caravans, or Mexicans are going to steal your jobs. They took our gerbs, all that stuff. It's the same thing as what Mr. Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in his speech. They took our gerbs. Keep the poor white man working for starvation wages because, you know, he's expendable. He's expendable. You're desperate because it's hard to find work anywhere else. So you got to work here so you can fucking survive. And if you dare speak up, you're going to get fired and replaced with someone even more desperate than you. Someone who the boss man is going to pay even less. And that kind of makes you feel a bit alienated. And it's, it's still like that. It's been like that for a long time. And it, it's still that way. And the reason that is, is it's, it's, it's not that boss man is inherently evil. it's just that the the uh, type the the structure, the system uh, the mode of production in which we live uh it rewards that kind of behavior you know selfish wall street types they're I, I mean barring any, like, serious mental illness, <laughs> like, um, a lot of people are not inherently fucking evil. It's just that we live in a system that uh, is not very sustainable. I'm, I don't have time, and I don't want to get into all the, you know, the critique and theory of um, our current prevailing mode of production, wink uh it's just that it rewards selfishness and it is unsustainable and it requires constant growth it is a vampire it is a parasite it is a virus that is hungry 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 and any type of regulation it it resists it yada 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 and basically if you're a worker in our current mode of production, in our current, uh, you know, system of commerce, you feel a bit alienated. You feel alienated from your work. You do work uh, simply to try to survive. And you can barely fucking survive, even though you work yourself to the bone. You know this? It's it's a big fucking thing. It's been like this for a long fucking time. People have been saying that for a long, saying this, critiquing this for a long fucking time. And those people getting critiqued have been pushed down, left out, or flat out smeared, smeared, smeared in media that is owned, well, you know, m- mainstream media that is owned by wealthy people who, because they function in a system that is unsustainable and that rewards um, basically exploiting people. Uh, Example, Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. So it would be in Jeff Bezos's interest if his mode is to get as much profit for as little cost as possible You know, that's his M.O. And so, if there is a dissenting voice, a dissenting perspective speaking out, why would he, you know, what good would it do him to publish and highlight and promote a perspective that would be against his M.O. in a publication, a very popular publication, that he owns, He owns Washington Post. Furthermore, Jeff Bezos, if you've been following current events, is extremely anti-union. He fucking hates labor unions. That's why he got out of his last marriage. When he found out it was a union, he's like, out. Okay, I'm going to cop out on myself here. I stole that joke from Twitter. I don't remember who it was, but I loved it. Uh, And the uh, CEO or whatever fucking chair he is of Whole Foods. Also, very, very, very fucking anti-union. These are extremely conservative people. There are people like that even in the Democratic Party. Example, what's his name? Manchin? Joe Joe Manchin? Let Let me look this guy up. I always fuck his name up, is it? Uh, Joe, man, is it Joe Manchin or am I mixing them up with someone else? Ye- uh, yeah, Joe Manchin, extremely conservative, I think. The blue dogs, the the quote unquote moderates. Oh, 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 I mean, fuck, it's Black History Month. I just realized that before when I was reading that um MLK quote, I didn't even think of it when I looked it up. I was like, ooh, this fits. MLK uh, white moderate quote. All right, here's another fitting one. Why is he always so fucking fitting? Uh, Okay, give me a second. It's loading. This is from a letter uh, from Birmingham jail. Uh, I'm not seeing the year here, but quote, Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the... Fucking ads popping up for Amazon. How about that? And Facebook. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have... Almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate. Interjecting here, the people who say, let's go back to brunch, uh, re engaging quote, uh, not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection, end quote. Now's not the time. It's only been a day. It's only been a week. It's only been a month. It's only been a year. We have to worry about midterms. Look, we just won the midterms. We can't, we've got a, we've got a general election coming up. We can't criticize. We can't criticize. We can't criticize. It's like that all the time that's that's another kind of oppression uh and again it's not these people it's not like people who say that kind of stuff are inherently fucking evil not the moderates they're not inherently evil it's just a rotten fucking perspective that for uh, one reason or a million they may adopt or or hold true to their hearts hold close um but anyway, what the fuck am I getting at? Oh, my God. Um, alienation. <laughs> the way things are, it's alienating. You feel alienated. You work your ass off doing a job. You You, you put your fucking time into creating something only to see that something taken away from you. And you create more and more and more than you need. That's called a surplus. And this stuff is taken from you. This work that you made is taken from you and then sold to someone else. You have no... Atta- this creation you made, this thing that you, you bore from your time, sweat, and tears and blood is taken away from you. You are alienated from the product from the product of your labor. You are alienated from the uh, process of selling these things, unless you work like in a co-op sort of a thing where every worker is a board, a part of the board. Uh, One worker, one vote is a co-op sort of a setup, but that's kind of rare, especially in the United States. And so you work and work and work, but you don't get to decide what to work on, what to do with the materials, uh, uh, what to do with the money you get from selling the commodities that you and your coworkers made together. Uh, you're alienated and kept down and fucking starved and starved and starved. And life is fucking hard. All right, I'm just going to try to blast through this because I want to wrap this thing up. You, you, you work and work and work and life is fucking hard, 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 hard. All right. And and if your life is shitty enough for long enough, you might start to wonder, why is my life so shitty? And then someone tries to tell you, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. If you believe in yourself, you can do it. If you work harder, you can make it. You can be a success like like me, Jeff Bezos. Just work harder. Make a vision board. Manifest your dreams. Manifest your destiny. <laughs> and then you do that. You work as hard as fucking possible. You do whatever you can. And maybe you work in a place where there's not a lot of opportunity. Maybe you're stuck there trying to take care of a, a dying parent who can't work, and, but you want to make sure that person is fed. Maybe you're in a place that they don't want you because, well, you look different or sound different or believe uh, in a different God or God in a different way. We are alienated. And say you bought the line, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and so you try and try and try. But you can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's against gravity. That's anti-physics. But, I mean, that's the joke. But the thing is, like, uh, conservative types, and I'm even calling those who may label themselves as liberal, as conservatives, they buy it. Unironically, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Just work hard. You can do it. The, the invisible hand of the free market will save you. Uh, you're alienated. You do all the right things, and your life is still shit. And you want to know, why is my life still shit? I've done all the right things. And then you maybe start asking, why is my life shit? I've done all the right things. And then it depends on who gives you an answer. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch, owner of Fox News and a shit ton of other media. I'm not even going to begin to get into the media machine. It's genius, evil fucking genius, but genius. Uh, The fascists in the world have their media machine. And also that's kind of really how the Nazis grew too, was propaganda, media. But again, (laughs) it's a whole other thing. I'm trying to not get distracted here. If someone might answer you saying, well, the reason things are so hard is because there's Mexicans taking your job. The reason things are so hard is, well, there's communists going to eat your kids. Well, the reason things are so hard is blah, 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 People in power who have power, who want to hold on to that power, will come up With a million different fucking stories. Except for one. The story that your life is fucking hard. Because I am reaping the reward of your work. Period. The reason your life is so hard is because, well, I'm getting a whole lot of stuff. Off of your blood, sweat, tears, time, and energy. All right. So the thing with QAnon type conspiracies and Nazi conspiracy theories and 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 uh, Volkisch Bewegung conspiracies and Jim Crow conspiracies. And uh, slave owner uh, uh, conspiracy theories and, um, you know, rich merchant landowner of the Northern American uh, colony conspiracies is that it's narratives to point the person who is suffering in any direction except toward the person who, well... Is kind of making them suffer, whether they intend to or not. They're probably not evil. It's just, they were born, born to the certain people in the certain place at a certain time that gave them a certain amount of privilege and power over certain other people. And, and, and there's a economic and production system that Rewards people who, well, basically act like vampires, and it's just a it's a very complex issue. But essentially, the reason people fall into QAnon stuff, I say, any conspiracy theory is the idea that someone is controlling it. it basically, these types of conspiracy theories obfuscate from the real conspiracy. There are real conspiracies, people conspiring together to stay in power, to keep what they have, to keep the stuff you make. And... That's kind of what happens. So the the core, like I said in the last episode, of these Q conspiracy theories is the core of the Nazi white supremacist uh, conspiracy theories. That is inherently uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic, anti anti everything except us, basically. Um, uh, an- an- anti-socialist, anti-Marxist, anti. Brown people, so on and so forth. Um, it's theories that are put forth from narratives that are put forth from people like like Rupert Murdoch, who come up with a million different things, and you know it's like a game of telephone where you say one thing, and then by the time the message get back gets back to you, it changes. That's how these that's how a lot of things work. Things transform, um, but essentially the essential function of conspiracy theories like those who pit the poor against the poor, those are designed to, well, keep the poor distracted. Um, keep the pitchforks pointed farmer to farmer, slave to farmer, farmer to slave, slave to slave, keep the poor fighting the poor, keep the low fighting the low. So they're too distracted to realize that they're all getting fucked by the high. Um, and that's kind of how the Q thing functions. It divides people. It says, oh, it's, it's the, the Marxist, communist, socialist. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's BLM. It's, it's so on and so forth. It's the Jews. The earth is flat and and also round and hollow at the same time. And, and the sun's actually made out of ice and Atlantis, uh, so on and so forth. Basically, it is a very poor, cheap, and sad explanation for why someone feels so alienated, why their life is so hard. And so uh my friend Wade asked the good question that I kind of touched on in the last episode as well. Um, if it if if it's alienation, then why are Um, the most marginalized people, immigrants and such, why are they not the ones spearheading the QAnon stuff, like the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021? And there's historical precedent for that. Uh, And that would be, for example, um, in pre-independent America, united states um and and it also happened with the the nazis too it was the middle class is easier to manipulate because essentially watering it down the very poor have nothing so they got nothing to lose whereas the middle class is a rather convenient buffer for the upper 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 class to keep themselves the upper class, to protect themselves from the very low class. The middle class is a buffer. Why? Because it's easier to threaten and manipulate them. Because while the middle class may not have a whole lot, they've got something. they got a little bit of something. And that means they got a little bit of something to lose because they barely got what they have right now. And they see other people and it's like, things could definitely be worse and so just the way you know modes of production and you know even you get into like the way a community is fucking built like the way a city is built you put certain people closer to other certain people so they're more likely to interact with each other essentially uh This happened with, I'm reading in this book here, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, talking about the 1700s America, where basically uh, the middle class was told by the very upper class, their bosses, saying like, you are benefiting from the way things are. You are benefiting from the status quo. And if things change one iota, you are literally going to lose everything. And you're going to be like those poor sorry motherfuckers out on the farm. So it's easier to threaten them. So, and that's kind of why you see, uh, middle-class petty bourgeois who are spearheading things like, uh, QAnon who are spearheading things like, uh, the rise of the Nazi party back in the, in the thirties. Uh, It's basically people who benefit, if only a little bit, from some type of uh, hyper-alienation of other peoples, Uh, people who benefit from a certain type of privilege. And it's again, it's not like these people are inherently fucking evil. It's just you grow up in a place that tells you certain stories. And those stories inform your beliefs and your beliefs inform your reality. And reality is not objective. There is no one objective reality. Uh, and so, essentially, I think that's kind of why people buy into cues. They're looking for explanations of why life is so shit. And um, conspiracies like like those you find in the QAnon conspiracy theories Uh, watered down from this. My own one perspective are basically just ways to protect the powers that be and people (laughs) are rubes. I I feel like they're victims. QAnon people, a lot of them are victims and they're, you know, they're being taught to hate taught, taught, to fear, and it's unfortunate. I I don't think that they're inherently bad people. Now, uh, e- even someone who's not inherently bad can certainly do bad things, absolutely. Um, but I feel like, basically, they're rubes. You know, like someone who buys into a, a cult. They're rubes. They're getting exploited. They're getting used to benefit someone else, really. And the only way to stop that, essentially, is to give people more agency, to give people more power. And I'm not saying give power to hate. I'm saying educate these types of people on the way power really is distributed. Educate people on how they're actually being alienated give them a more materialist analysis, Marxist critique of why their lives are shit. And maybe they'll understand eventually, wait, it's not BLM. Wait, it's not communist gay frogs or anything I've bought into a cult. I've bought into a lie to distract me from maybe really realizing why my life is shit. And the person who's been pitching this stuff, or whom I have least assumed to be the ones uh, fucking me over, maybe they're the ones I should be having a serious talk with and protesting. I hope this made sense. I'm done for the day. Today is Sunday, February 7th. It is currently 2.09 p.m. Central Time Zone, North America, United States. And I'm going to go make some nachos. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to help support the show, I encourage you to please become a patron at patreon.com slash that thing with James. And a deep thank you to... Those of you who are supporting me already, Uh, your donations are greatly valued and are a big help. Uh, Let's see what else. If you have any ideas of a topic or subject for me to cover, or if you have like a story you want me to cover on the show, or if you have advice that you'd like me to, you know, give on the show, send me an email. At thatthingwithjames at gmail dot com, or you could slide into my DMs, or just check out my fire posting game on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J Asher. I am always in search of new memes and quality shit posts. You can put those, uh, post them on my subreddit r slash. That thing with James. Thank you for tuning in. I I hope I wrapped some stuff up in this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, Wade, you said it. You said it right, man. You said it more succinctly than I could. It, the greatest trick the ruling—if I'm paraphrasing here—the greatest trick the ruling class could pull on the middle and lower the working class middle and lower classes is to believe that the threat uh, the threat to the upper class is a bigger threat to them <laughs> i know i butchered it but you get it uh thanks for tuning in i love you catch you in the next episode episode bye